There is one great truth of the Christian life that every believer realizes either at conversion or very soon after, and that is that you aren't going to make it on your own. You couldn't find God on your own, you couldn't receive Christ on your own, and you certainly can't live for him on your own. You need divine assistance. And it's funny when some non-believers when non-believers like to mock a Christian's faith, every once in a while you'll hear this, and when I was in college days I heard this kind of often, they'd say, Jesus is just a crutch for you. Ever heard that? Implying that you're too weak to face life without him. And it's meant as an insult, but I don't think it goes far enough, personally. Christ is much more than a crutch to me. Uh, a crutch suggests sort of a mere leg wound, sort of a limping along kind of a situation, and um, my situation was a lot worse than that. He's an iron lung. He's life support. He's a new heart. He's a heart transplant. He's brain surgery. In short, he's new life. Far more than a crutch, because I needed much more than a crutch. He's everything that I needed. But I don't need him to continue on as I did then. That's true. I mean, I could have faced life as a pagan and gone along and can sin. I can sin pretty much on my own. I don't need a whole lot of divine enablement for that. Excluding the fact that I owe my very existence to him, of course, and my health, and my surroundings, and my food, and my air, and my water, but aside from those minor items that God provides, which I have taken from him without gratitude, I could function emotionally probably without him. I'd be a different person, but I would be pretty much your average person, just making it through life, and I could do that, and do a regular job, and all that kind of stuff. But, to live for him, that's a whole nother matter. And no, crutches just don't do for that. I need a new everything. What's wonderful is that's exactly what he's provided for me and for anyone who comes to him by faith. Wonderfully, he's provided most of my new everything already as a gift of divine grace. But there are a couple things yet to come. I can't wait to shed off the old mortal coil, as they say, because this body drags me down. And we've talked about that in weeks past in Romans chapter 8 here. Romans chapters 6 through 8 deal with the subject of sanctification, how to live a holy life, a set-apart life, one that's different from the world, a life that honors and glorifies and pleases God. Romans 8 has introduced into the discussion the all-important role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. He wasn't mentioned much at all in chapters 6 and 7 because Paul was bringing us up to this point. But Romans 8, things start to really click and you see the necessity of the Spirit's role in everything. Chapter 7, you might remember, ends with thanksgiving. After describing this wretched conflict that every Christian feels, this tension between the new inner self and this old body that we're struggling with, what he calls the flesh, after describing that conflict that the Christian faces between his new nature and his old one, between his new inner man and his flesh, in verse 24 of chapter 7, he just cries out, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then suddenly he just bursts into thanksgiving and he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because he has and will do that, set us free from the struggle. One day, the body of this death will be transformed and it will match with the holy desires of the inner man. And I can't wait. 
Then chapter 8 begins with words of remarkable assurance to the genuine Christian. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. If you are in Christ, no condemnation awaits you. And he explains that this is because of Christ dying for sin, that is to fulfill on our behalf the debt that we owe as sinners to divine justice. He served our sentence of death. And the result in verse 4 of chapter 8, he says, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 4 introduces to us the Holy Spirit in the sanctification process. Salvation from sin belongs to those who walk according to the Spirit and do not walk according to the flesh. Now, as the Bible always does, humanity is divided into two groups of people. Always. It's always two, right? There's always a narrow, there's the narrow road and the wide road. There's the good fish and the bad fish. There's sheep and there's goats. There's always two. And in this case, the division is this way. One set their minds on the things of the flesh. They're set on the flesh. That is, they're bound by this world. They have no capacity to see life from any way other than what their own self shows to them. They can't see God's perspective. They can't even understand it. They can't see an eternal perspective in the decisions that they make. They don't get that. They're bound by their own humanity. Unable to see anything from a godly point of view. And then there are those who have the mindset on the Spirit, which by God's grace puts things in an eternal perspective. And they live by the light of heaven, and they see beyond this world. The minds are set on the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is described in verse 7. It says, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. God's law... Who cares? And those who are in the flesh, verse 8 says, cannot please God. By contrast, the genuine Christian has the Spirit dwelling within, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised, Jesus from the de- de- who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. That's great stuff. The presence of the spirit in us is our surety, our promise of redemption and immortality and perfect holiness that is to come in the presence of our Lord. And at this point, Paul starts to explain how the indwelling of the Spirit promotes sanctification or the holy life. In verse 13, he says, we put to death the deeds of the body, that's sins, by the Spirit. That's how that's done. He enables us to say no to sin. Verse 14 describes this as being led by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit assures our hearts He goes on to say that we are God's children. He puts within us a desire and a confidence whereby we call God Father. Verse 15. Then verse 16. I'm just catching us up to where we are, okay? That's why I'm going so fast. Verse 16. One aspect of um, the Christian's assurance is this inner witness of the Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. We would have none of the confidence and the assurance of our salvation without the Spirit. We would not delight in being children of God without the Spirit. We would instead always be afraid of not being good enough, what he calls the spirit of fear in verse 15, a spirit of slavery leading to fear, he says. We'd never know quite how God thought of us. Because when we come before him, we'd always be aware of our own sins and the continuing problems that we have and our struggles and this flesh stuff and it would just really drive us down. We'd never know, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who's given to us by God, assures us, heart to heart, soul to soul, that we are his children and we are not, nor will we ever be condemned by him. So God views us as his own, as imperfect as we are. Now, from verse 18 to 25, we have Paul's important discussion of our world and ourselves and why suffering exists and all of that. Talked about that a couple weeks ago. God, he tells us, has cursed the creation in response to human sin because we shattered the harmony of his kingdom. We polluted it with evil. And so he paid us out by cursing creation. But he had a redemptive plan in that cursing. That curse is to remind us of our own sinfulness, our own need of a Savior, that the world is not right. Things don't come out right. Something is wrong, and that something, he tells us, is our own wickedness and need for him. So creation was, as Paul says in verse 20, subjected to futility. But it was subjected to futility in hope. Verse 21 says that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And now, not only creation groans, then he says we groan too. Christians, those who are in Christ, those who are not condemned, we're waiting too, like creation does, verse 23. Not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. Now, did you see the Spirit in verse 23? We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. What does he mean? Having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan. Well, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a reality that God has given us as a pledge of that redemption that is to come. His presence is like a down payment, a divine down payment. And God it doesn't run out of resources, so it's going to be paid out. It's an absolute guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says the Holy, describes the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So that's how we know. God indwelling believers is a surety of our redemption. So the Spirit's role is profound in all sorts of areas. I mean, he awakens us, he enlivens us, he renews us, he leads us, he witnesses to us, to our own spirits about our condition as children of God, and he indwells us. And, and here's our text for today, in verse 26, we come to a new work of the Spirit, a wonderful work, and a comfort, and again, a security, and that is that the Holy Spirit prays for us. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This text really deserves your attention and your concern because there's two key words here that will be enormously helpful to you if you understand them. They're both verbs. The two key verbs in, in verse 26 and 27 there, verse 26 is helps, the Holy Spirit helps us, and he intercedes. How exactly does he help us? What is he helping? He's helping our weakness. How are we weak? We do not know how to pray as we should. Here's an apostle writing that. Sounds like we need a crutch after all, huh? I mean, if your praying knees are feeble, you need a crutch. Wouldn't a crutch help you go? Yeah, be a crutch. Prayer is such an integral part of the genuine spiritual life that many of us are plagued by weakness when we get right down to it because prayer is hard work. Prayer is not effortless. Real prayer is a hard but necessary endeavor. You know John Bunyan, one of the super saints, you know, one of those guys people look back in the past and they say, oh, he's great. He's the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He spent many, many years in prison writing theology books and praying for people and being a pastor in the prisons and just because he wouldn't compromise his biblical convictions and the king of the Rome slapped him in jail and spent a long time there. He wrote this. He said, I find that my heart is slow to go to God. And when it does go to him, it does not seem to want to stay with him. So very often I am forced in my prayers, first to beg of God that he would take my heart and set it on himself, and then when it is there, that he would keep it there. Desire and concentration. We are weak in both of those areas. I know I am. I mean, I can keep up a fairly consistent sort of conversational prayer life as I go about my daily tasks when my mind is not engaged in other things. I'm driving somewhere or something like that. Or when I'm really desperate for help and dealing with some situation or people that I don't really know how to help. I mean, then I'm really clinging in prayer. But the time in prayer that is God's time alone, the time that's just Him and you set aside, special time, that's where the important work gets done. And that's where it's really hard. It's exactly as Bunyan speaks. It's desire, first of all, and then concentration. That makes it hard. Often I am lethargic and get into it and distracted when I get there. Anybody ever have that experience? I hate finding myself praying in earnest for someone and then find myself suddenly mentally engaged with tomorrow's calendar or something. I mean, your mind's just suddenly elsewhere. How did I get here? Well, you know what? The Holy Spirit helps in those areas. He not only helps us do better, but as we struggle along, he actually fills in all those places where we're not making it. René Pache, the French evangelical, one of the guys that founded InterVarsity Press, wrote a pretty influential book a number of years ago in the Holy Spirit, and he summed up our weakness in prayer in five different categories. I just want to kind of share with you his because they'll probably be familiar to you. He said, first of all, our prayers are selfish. Paul says, they always lead back to ourselves and it is only the Spirit who teaches us to pray for the kingdom of God and for other people. And if you think about the Lord's Prayer, you know, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, which some people point out should be called the disciples' prayer, <laughs> because Jesus wouldn't pray for forgiveness and stuff. He's teaching them how to pray for themselves. It is marvelously a God-centered prayer. It has way more to do with him than it has to do with us. 
Think about the elements of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? That means something about Halloween or something, right? No, it means, uh, may your name be regarded as holy, hallowed, may it be sanctified. May your name in our world be honored and given the place that it deserves to be. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Thy kingdom come. I want to see your program advanced into the world. I want to see Jesus come back. Thy will be done. Whose desire is the praying person most concerned with? God's desire. Thy will be done. Only after God and his will are, um, are honored and thoroughly addressed, then we start to come to ourselves. And only then do we turn to our own needs, daily bread and forgiveness and deliverance. And even most of the prayers that revolve around us involve our relationship to him, right? And his kingdom. Forgiveness, deliverance. Isn't that how it should be? Doesn't it make sense that God would be the center of the universe and the center of our lives and our prayers? Because he, he's God, and we're not, as they say. Second, Paul says our prayers lack insight. Now, let's face it. Sometimes we just don't know what to pray for. I always try to be biblical, and I try to think seriously about what God would want me to um, think what, how he would see a situation. I meditate on God's nature and person, and I try to think of how Jesus would look at a situation, and I try to pray along those lines, but sometimes we have conflicting aspects of God's nature. I don't mean conflicting ultimately, but God's justice on one hand, and his mercy on the other hand, and what are you praying for with regard to those things, and his glory, certainly you pray for, that's always a safe one to, to rely on, but from there it can be hard to know. But you know what? The Holy Spirit knows. He knows. And he's praying too. And that word intercede in verse 26. Intercede just means to speak or act on behalf of someone. If you're in trouble with the law and somebody intercedes for you, they come in and talk to the powers that be on your behalf. That's what it means. Very simple. The Holy Spirit speaks on our behalf. He prays for us and with us. And you don't hear it. It's too deep for words. But it's much superior to our prayers because as God, the Holy Spirit has infinite knowledge, right? And you don't. And you might not know God's will, but he knows God's will. Verse 27 says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He prays for us according to the will of God because he knows the will of God because he is God. That's pretty simple. And isn't that a comfort to know one is praying with us who dwells in us, who knows perfectly God's will in all things. And this expression describing the Spirit in verse 26 there, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's a very emotional word. It even makes theologians kind of jump back and they say, well, that's a very anthropomorphic way to describe that. I mean, his groaning. That's exactly the way God wants you to understand what he's doing. It's the same word used in verse 22 of creation groaning under the travail of the curse. In verse 23, which describes our groaning, our longing for the redemption from sin. Well, folks, in all of our sorrows and longings and yearnings for God's solution to all of our problems and our dear ones' sufferings and their problems, the Spirit groans with us. 
He's right there. Not only by you, but in you and with you and all the feeling that you have about the situation. You never pray alone, not without a sympathetic partner in prayer, and that's God himself. He feels your anguish of soul as though it were his own, and it becomes his own. God groans too, because he loves you. And I'll tell you a secret. His perfect prayers, which are drawn from his compassion and his infinite wisdom, are answered according to God's perfect will, verse 27. That's what makes verse 28 such a comfort. And every Christian knows verse 28, right? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God. That's why that happens. Well, I don't want to give away the goodies. I'm only at number two. So number three on Pasha's list, he says our prayers are cold. He doesn't mean you shiver when you pray. He says we pray too often as a duty-giving lip service. Our requests lack fervor because our hearts and minds remain indifferent when faced with the seriousness of sin, the loss of souls, and God's interests. That's why in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul, when he pleads with the Roman Christians to pray with him, he asked them to pray with effort and with love. And, and he says they needed to be motivated and earnest in their prayers. He says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He says, strive in prayer. And that word strive is... It's a Greek word, agonizomai, where we get a word, agonize. And it means, see, it's a word used of wrestlers. You know those ancient Roman wrestlers that grab each other and just rip each other their shreds and strive together. Strive in prayer, he says. Pray fervently and confidently because every weakness the Spirit will fix and repair and perfect. So don't be afraid of blowing it because the Spirit's going to be right there with you. So struggle ahead, move forward. Knowing that the Spirit prays, that should not make us listless. We shouldn't have an attitude of, oh, well, he's going to take care of it. That should motivate us to be energized in prayer because he's right there with us. And whatever we do wrong or think wrong or say wrong, he fixes anyway. He knows exactly how to pray. We should pray because we love God and we love his people and that should motivate us. Romans 15.30, the, the love of the Spirit there sounds a lot like Romans 5.5. 5 where it said the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And as Pasch says there in his book, how can we pray with such fervor unless the love of the Spirit fills our hearts? And I think he's right. The Spirit grants us the love of God which moves us to pray. The fourth weakness that he mentions is that our prayers are intermittent. That is, it's not constant enough, you know? The Bible says to pray always, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And again, as we develop our spiritual life, and as we grow close to the Lord, the Spirit puts God's love within us and prompts us towards prayer. And as we walk in the Spirit, as we go through life, we will feel more drawn to prayer. But most of us will struggle with persevering prayer. In other words, we'll, it'll be intermittent. We'll drop out sometimes. We'll have flat times in our lives where we just won't be doing that. And he makes up for it. He makes up for it. Always praying. Always going. Number five, Pasha says, our prayers lack power and faith. The Spirit himself is the source of believing prayer. 
faith is a gift, you know, the Bible tells us. And as he leads us, we trust in him, we grow in faith, and we actually start to see our prayers answered, and wonderfully so, uh, marvelously so sometimes, and we see that there is power there. There is power there that we can credit, not to ourselves, but to him as well. So, you know, in ourselves alone, our prayers may be rather selfish, they may lack insight, they may be cold at times, they may be irregular, they may be lacking in faith and power, but the Holy Spirit directs his prayers for the good of God's people and is perfectly in line with God's will and never lacks in earnestness and it never ceases and it is possessed of divine power. So now, don't forget, he is a perfect prayer warrior with infinite wisdom and knowledge and power and the Father to whom he speaks has infinite knowledge in just the same way. And so the Father and the Spirit are in perfect agreement with whatever he's praying for. It's according to God's perfect will. And who does the Spirit intercede for? Verse 27. For the saints. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who are the saints? Oh, those are those real special people who lived a long time ago and they, they make like weird statues out of them and put them on lawns and stuff. No. You read the New Testament. A saint is any Christian. That's who the saints are. Called as saints, the Bible says, of every Christian. That means that his prayers for us, if you think about it, his prayers for us are always answered. And they're always effective. And they never fail. And that is why a true Christian, one who is truly born again, cannot be lost to God. We will all reach the goal of heavenly perfection someday. And as we said, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Verse 28 says, There's happy news there for the Christian. God ordains life for your good. So you should be able to find a lot of peace in that. Even when circumstances don't look right, those circumstances are being ordained and controlled and designed for your ultimate good. That is an absolute fact. Let it make you more constant knowing that and more faithful in your prayers and in your service that such a God would do so much for you because... He deserves nothing less than your whole heart doing that for you. But we'll look more at God's working in all things for our good next week. First, Romans 8.28 is powerful, but it's even more powerful in the setting in which we find it here. And you've gotten one side of that setting, and we'll start, start there and expand into the next part. Divine election. We're going to be spending weeks and weeks on divine election. So get ready to get rattled, because it's heavy stuff and it's powerful let's pray Father we thank you for the prayers of the Spirit who even as I pray at this very moment Lord is praying with me and through me and groaning for the strength of the body of this church that we would come to fruition in our godliness that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident within us he longs for that as I long for that and he's so much more than I and in every imperfection of my prayer, his prayer is perfect and perfectly according to your divine will, O oh Father. 
And we thank you for that. You are a treasure. And we love you. And we give you our lives as only you deserve to have everything. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.